With photography, you have an image and you capture it, you know. With music, you have a song and you play it, and then you might, you know, write a tune or so. But painting, you're looking at a black canvas. You got to come up with something. What are you going to come up with? Well, how do you get there? This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today I have the real honor, the pleasure of talking to one of the icons, one of the real masters of American photography, Azure Collins. Uh, Azure is a... Um, I can't even say a fine arts photographer because that would limit him. He's, he's portrait, he's landscape, he's fine arts, he's all over the place. And a tremendously talented and successful painter. His work has been in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the International Museum of Photography, the Museum of Modern Art. The list of, of galleries and museums goes on and on, as does the list of awards. So often, looking through photography, we look at the image and, and we forget uh, who actually pressed the shutter release for that one. I am amazed by how many photographs have gone by that have got the Adger Cowan's name behind them. Adger, good morning. Welcome. Good morning. How's life out on the East Coast this morning? Oh, it's a little bit chilly here today. It's probably going to clear up a little bit later on today, but it's wonderful. I love this kind of weather anyway. It is getting on towards winter. We've got fall going on. The colder days can be pretty inspiring sometimes. I I am humbled when when I look at your work, sir. I I, I look at the uh, not only the images but the intent behind them, um, and, and I find real inspiration there. Tell me, you know, in in your writing in your book, you talk about the importance of family when you were growing up, and the importance of music when you were growing up. Tell me about the really early days, even before you understood yourself as a photographer. What was forming the artistic vision that became you? Well, I really don't know. I think that as I grew and I began to think about it in uh, later years, I was a big daydreamer. And I can remember my mother having to come to school. I think it was Mrs. Tyree's class. I guess uh, probably fifth, sixth grade, something like that. So my mother came to school to find out about me. And Miss Tyree Torres, she said, you know, Ed is a good student. When I call on him, he usually has the answer. But after that, he's always daydreaming. <laughs> He's always looking out the window, <laughs> you know, and I did because I don't know, I could hear everything, but I had a very intimate personal life growing up, you know, and I think that sort of led to the fact that being a artist, you have to have time to dream and think and imagine, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's kind of where I started, but I didn't realize that too many years later. Were you just daydreaming about anything? Were you, was there something about, you know, looking at the walls or looking out the window? Oh, I was looking out the window. My seat was by the window. So I was always looking out the window and uh, looking at the birds flying and the light changing on the trees and the airplanes way up in the sky and just regular things that was, you know, kind of on my mind about life. And uh, I was excited about 
life, I think, even as a kid, you know, I ask a lot of questions, you know, what's this, what's that, you know? And I think that that, that whole concept of being in my head as a kid and being a daydream really helped me out later on in terms of understanding myself as an artist. You know, my mother was an amateur photographer and my uncle was an amateur photographer. But when I was really little, I mean, I, I started in music. I started with the trumpet when I was, you know, I, oh, junior high school. My uncle gave me his E-flat trumpet. And so I played trumpet all the way up through college. I had gotten a scholarship to uh, Capitol University when I was getting out of high school. I did not want to go back to high school. They said, we will give you a full scholarship, but you have to go back to high school and brush up on your English and math, which was terrible. I said, I don't want to do that. I, you know, So I went to see my teacher. She said, Andrew, I think this would be a very good opportunity for you. Everybody was telling me that, but I didn't want to go back to high school. So I was sitting around the house all that summer. And my mother said, you're not going to sit around all summer and not do anything. You're going to have to do something with your life. So my sister's boyfriend had a magazine, one of the few magazines that had photography in it. I think it was modern photography, popular photography, one of those. And in the article, it said, Ohio University gives degree in photography. So I said, bet. (laughs) 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 I had no idea of what that was going to be. But I had taken, you know, an elective in high school photography, and I liked it. It was fun. I wasn't that excited about it, but <clears throat> I didn't have to do anything else, you know. I could be in the dark room. So uh, she showed it to my father, and, you know, my father said, that's ridiculous. He said, Kodak makes a camera. They send you the film. You send it back. And they send a picture, what is this? you know, going to school. I'm going to spend my money in college. You're going to study photography. Anyway, my mother sort of leaned on a little bit. My mother was a very, very sweet person. So she kind of leaned on my father. So, well, honey, that's what he wants to do. So I registered for Ohio University in the fall of 1954. I didn't know what I was getting into. I really didn't. You say in, in your book that when you enrolled, you were only, quote, looking at things that were interesting. You didn't know how to merge emotion and image. I did. So talk to me about merging emotion and image. I mean, not only historically, you know, how did you discover that? But really, what do you mean? Well, I think that um, I was always a very quiet person, you know, uh, sort of a daydreamer. But I was also, you know, very... Um, how do you say? I was into a lot of things. I was a paper boy. I was in the Boy Scouts. I was a Cub Scout. People in my neighborhood would always call on me to go to the store and get things for them when I was really small, you know. And this is like, you know, right after the Second World War. So things were really tight back then, you know, in terms of everybody not having money. I mean, we had stamps, what they called war stamps. And every family had a book. And in this book were pictures of tanks, men with guns, ships, airplanes, all this type of thing. And when you went to the store to buy food, you they would tear so many out. Everybody had it, you know, all families, black, white, 
anybody in America. They were saving the good meat and the good things for our boys who were fighting the war. I remember that so clear. And if somebody in your family was in the war, then you had a flag of whatever they were there. I had an uncle, two uncles in the Navy and one in the Army, so we had these flags. So that's kind of the where I grew up in that kind of situation. So I learned how to make money on my own by running errands and doing things for people in the neighborhood. But I think the idea of being able to understand what photography was about. I mean, my first year in college, I did like all other students. I partied. Second year, I partied. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Yeah. And then the third year, I don't know, something happened to me. And I began to realize that this thing about photography was really important to me because when I would show people my work, they would say something about it. And I took that and I listened to what they said and it gave me a sort of a window into their soul, you know, a sort of cheap psychology because what they would say would a lot of times tell me who they were. If they liked it, they didn't like it. If they responded to something in the photograph that I had done and they saw it and said, oh, I like the way you did such and such and such. But it was cheap psychology, and I think that's what really got me into being more serious about photography. I mean, I liked everybody. I mean, most everybody that I looked at, but I think the first person that really inspired me when I was in school was uh, Edward Weston. And it wasn't much the image as the tonality that he had in his photographs. It was otherworldly. It was like almost three-dimensional. So, um, and then, you know, my father kept saying, well, I don't know what you're going to do. And so my uncle said, why don't you find somebody black that's doing what you want to do? Well, in those days, you didn't say black, you know. <laughs> you said Negro or colored. So he told me, and I said, I don't know anybody. All my teachers are white, and I don't know if there's anybody black. So I asked my teacher, um, Walter B. Allen, if there was a black person that he knew of that was a photographer. He said, I think there's a guy at Life Magazine, Gordon Parks. So I, I guess it was 1955 or 56, Life Magazine came out with a big book of Life Magazine photographers, and he was in it. And so I wrote him a letter, and he said to look him up when I came to New York. This is sort of a famous story, though. I mean, this letter here, you didn't you didn't just send him a generic, you know, dear Mr. Parks, I like taking pictures. Can you help? I mean, you had to have said something in the letter that caught his interest. Did you send some samples along? I mean, how did no, you approach that? No, I just sent him a letter and told him that I was a student at Ohio University and that I come to New York because we would drive to New York on the weekends. And Miles Davis was at Carnegie Hall. Or if Monk was at the five spot, we would drive to New York with our teacher, David Hostetler, who was a sculptor. And uh, we would all pal in the car, uh, Charlie Held, uh, Jim Dine, his girlfriend, and E.J. Tracy, and myself, and a couple other people. And we'd drive to New York. So one of the times I came there, I called and told him that I was in New York. And he said, well, come up. 
and he told me how to get there, and I met him at White Plains. And when he turned the corner in a powder blue Thunderbird of leather and shades <laughs> on, I said, oh, God, I'm definitely going to be a photographer. <laughs> because I had no you know, idea of what that was about or, you know, anything. But I think while I was in school, those last couple of years, I got very serious about photography because I realized that I could do something and I didn't have to talk. And if I showed it to somebody, they would tell me what they saw or what they felt. And that helped me in terms of what I was doing as a photographer, trying to capture that feeling, you know, and it became very important to me to understand what it was that I was doing. And so I came up, well, I didn't come up with this idea, but it began to dawn on me that all the great photographers that I like, like Ansel Adams and Weston and Stiglitz and Clarence H. White Jr. was my teacher. So, I mean, I was taught that whole concept of photography's art. So uh, I began to understand the idea of personal expression. So I began to pay attention to how I felt when I was taking a picture. And it seemed to me that I would see things, but I couldn't capture it. I wasn't either fast enough or I wasn't ahead of it. I was behind it, whatever. So I began to practice with my camera so that I didn't have to look at it when I was going to take a picture. So that gave me this timing was very important. And uh, so I learned how to not look at my camera and deal with how I felt. And then I began to understand that you really don't take pictures with your eyes. You take pictures with your heart. And I should tell everybody who's listening, by the way, of course, you have a website. It's adgercowens.com, A-D-G-E-R-C-O-W-A-N-S.com. And I hope that the people are listening to this and are looking at that website simultaneously. You call out in your writing somewhere that image of the children with the four balloons as being the first one that of your own photographs that moved you. Yes. Tell me the story of that photograph um, and, and how that's played out in your in your history. I learned to drive a car early on. Uh, I guess I was 16 and I was really excited. I wanted to learn to drive a car. And so, you know, I learned to drive a car and I got my license. And as soon as I got my license, I knew I had done the wrong thing because my mother said, go down and take your grandmother to the store, to the country. She got to <laughs> and go over here and take your aunt. So then I became the chauffeur for everybody in the family. You know, I said, oh, this is a bad thing. So anyway, I, this particular day, she asked me to go down and pick up my grandmother's church. And the church was right beside East Market there. So while she was in church doing something, I was walking around with my camera and I saw these kids and the balloon man on the corner and they were just looking at this blue balloon man with such, you know, I, if they could have one, you know, they really wanted, but they didn't have any money. And at that time, you know, it was cheap, like, you know, five cents, two cents for a balloon, something like that. So I bought a balloon for each one of them. And then I said, can I take your picture? 
And they were so excited about me taking their picture. So I just stood them there and shot that picture. And as when I looked at it later on, first I thought, you know, nobody wants to see a picture of poor kids holding balloons. But then when I really looked at the picture and I showed it to other people, they said, those kids are really happy. Look at their faces. And that's when I began to understand that I had caught this emotion that touched other people. They didn't see them as poor, raggedy kids. They saw them as these kids with happy faces and these balloons. And that shot juice into my arm and to my whole life. And I began to understand what that was. And so then I really began to search pictures out. Well, not search, I became a hunter. I would walk down and look, look for things. And it's always going on in life. It's all around you all the time. You know, it's, it's your timing to catch it. You know, people say, oh, that was a great picture. Well, it was, but you didn't take it. <laughs> you were busy talking about what a great picture it was. You know, people always say, oh, that's a, that'd make a great picture. Well, you didn't get it because you were talking. So I found that you had to be very quiet inside and that you had to really, really look and feel what it was that was going on around you. So that just kept, you know, being the kind of signature thing for me to do in anything that I photographed, whether it was abstract, whether it was portrait, whatever, I was looking for that moment when the person I was photographing let go and stopped posing for me. You know, I didn't like people to pose. I wanted to see, to capture where they were at that time in their life or in their mind. And I found that when I relaxed people, and I would, you know, and then I started being a big mouth and talking, how you feel today? What's going on? <laughs> to get people to begin to relate to me as not the photographer, but another person. And I found that that really worked really well that if I could get people to relax and not be uptight about being photographed, you know, it's, oh, my hair, my this, my that. And that wasn't what I was after. I was always after the emotion. So help me out with your timeline then a little bit. You graduate from college, and then do you go into the Navy then, or do you work for Gordon Parks then, or? They happened together. Yeah, that summer I got out of school, I came to New York on the 12 o'clock bus with $12 in my pocket. And uh, my brother said, where are you going, man? It's 12 o'clock. I said, we got to catch the 12 o'clock bus. So I caught the 12 o'clock bus to New York and I checked into the Y at 34th Street. And the next day I called Gordon and told him I was in New York. He said, where are you living? I said, I'm at the Y. He said, get out of there. Get out of there. Come up here. <laughs> I I didn't understand what was going on. I mean, I saw guys running around, you know, hugging each other. And, you know, I didn't know anything about what gay was. But Gordon, I guess, was ahead of me. He said, get out of there and come up here. And he told me how to get the bus to White Plains. And I went up there and he looked at my work and he said, great, great, great. And he said, well, I'd like you to work with me at Life Magazine be my assistant. You make it sound so easy there. All you do is just go to New York, you know. <laughs> it was. It was magic. It really was. I didn't have to go through a lot of searching around and all that. That came later on. <laughs> but that first year that I got out of school, 
yeah, I went up there and uh, he said, you can live with me and my family and work with me at Life Magazine. So Gordon Parks Jr. and I became really good buddies because he was maybe years so older than me. And he played the guitar, you know, so we became fast friends and I would get up and go with Gordon in the morning and then in the afternoon I'd come back and Gordon Jr. and I would play around and do whatever we were doing. But I think it was, it was almost like a magic uh, thing. I worked with Gordon all that summer and uh, toward the end of the summer, um, Gordon Jr. and I had a, got an apartment in New York. Toward the end of that summer, my mother called and said, you got a letter from the White House. I said, Mama, read it. She said, it's addressed to you. But I said, my mother's very funny. I said, read it. She said, well, it says, greetings from your friends and neighbors at the White House. You've been selected among the fortunate few to serve in the armed force of the United States of America. Please report the induction center on such and such a date. Oh, my. I'm in New York. I work with Gordon. She said, well, you better get (laughs) behind here, you know. So I had to get on the plane and come back. I left all my stuff there, some of that I never saw again, uh, negatives and stuff. I just left everything, and I went home. And I had been in the reserves when I was in high school, the Navy. So I went to my old CO and I said, Chief, I don't want to go in the Army. I'd rather go in the He said, well, you didn't report back and we turned your name into the draft board. So you're going to have to be in the Army crawling around with a gun on your belly. <laughs> I said, no, I want to be on the boat. He said, well, if you go in right now, by the end of this week, he said, we'll change and you can be in the, in the Navy. So I did and so that I didn't get to go back to New York. I went right into the Navy that week. So And was, you were a photographer you were a photographer for the Navy. Yeah, I was a photographer. Well, that's another story. Uh after boot camp, I, I won the American Spirit Award, which was something they gave out to most outstanding recruit in that graduating class. There were five thousand sailors in that class. So I mean I was surprised. So I got this award, and with this award, you get to be an honor guard for whoever the president is. You know, you have these, you know, when the president shows you so somebody from each part of the service, the Navy, the Army, and, you know, you look sharp. Right, and you, right. And then the president shows you show. So uh, Eisenhower was in it. I said, I don't, I don't want to do that. They said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> this is the easiest duty in the world. Everybody wants this job. And I said, I don't want to do it. I want to do photography. And they said, well, what do you know about it? I said, well, you know, I went to school. And they said, okay, all right. So if you pass this test, then we'll change your duty station. So <laughs> they gave me a 40 questions, you know, verbal. They talk, what's this, what's that? And I answered every question, and they were, like, amazed. I said, well, I guess you are a photographer. So they changed my duty, and I ended up going to Oceana Naval Air Station in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Oh, man. I'm I'm looking at your portfolio here, which is all over the board. There's an intense curiosity on your part, which is one of the things that I think comes through in the pictures. But I can't say that you are one type of a photographer or another type of a photographer because you are both at, at the same time. Well, that's the, way we learned. that's the way we learned in school. We were taught all forms of photography, you know, architecture, 
commercial photography, photojournalism, uh, portraiture, all the, you know, it wasn't specialized like people are. I like some guys do, well, I only photograph food or I only photograph studio work. We had everything. So that was my background in terms of studying photography. And I think that Clarence H. White Jr., the son of Clarence H. White Sr., who was one of the few uh, photographers that showed at Stieglitz's Gallery 291. So he had that kind of background, Clarence Jr. did, so that's the way he taught. So we had to learn everything. We had to learn how to develop color. We had to learn how to print. We had to learn to mount, all of it. So when I got out of school, I had a real good grounding in uh, all forms of photography, but I was very, you know, as you say, inquisitive. You know, I didn't want to be doing just one type of photography. I liked whatever turned me on. So that's how I have all these different areas of photography. But I think it still boils down that all of my photography you look at, it all deals with emotion, no matter what it is. You know, even the movie work for that. That's a, that's a perfect transition because the movies is, is where I was going to go next. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you how did you break into taking uh, production stills? I, I'm looking at some of them on your website right now, and I have to ask you about one. This is from on Golden Pond, and it's the picture where Catherine Hepburn has her head on Henry Fonda's shoulder. That image became one of the icon images of that movie. I don't know if it was on posters or, or billboards or whatever, but I mean, that, that is a signature piece. And I'm wondering if the cinema photographer <laughs> didn't look at that and say, oh, great. You know, um, the, the one visual image everyone's carrying is not through the movie camera, it's through the still camera. Um, but tell me how you got into movies. Billy Williams, if, who was the DP on that, we got along really good, and he liked my photographs a lot. You know, sometimes there's a little jealousy between the cinematographer and the still photographer, <laughs> but yeah. we only photograph what the cinematographer sets up. So, but it's all again in terms of the business. They want a picture that has emotion, or it has a, something in it that they can use to advertise, and and that that's what that was about. But we learned, worked in late. Winnipesaukee all that summer. But I got into movies, again, quite by accident. I had worked on a movie, Cotton Comes to Harlem, which was the first picture done by a black director in a major studio, and that was Ozzie Davis. I worked on a movie, but they gave me a permit. The union gave me a permit. They didn't let me in the union. They said, because Ozzie Davis wanted black people somewhere involved behind the camera, not just in front. So um, I got on the movie, and I guess it was about halfway through the movie, one of the guys, sound guys, said, you know, he said, there's a union uh, that you could join, you know, and you can do this kind of work all the time. I said, well, I don't want to, you know, be in the union. This is, you know, you're working every day. And I had been a freelance photographer, so, you know, you work a week and you take a week off, you know, or you take a month off. <laughs> so the idea of working every day, I, I didn't like that idea. But then he told me, he said, well, you should try. He said, there are no Negroes at that time who were in the union. He said, and I think the kind of work that you do is really good. He said, I think it's perfect. So, but that was after 
I got in it because Sidney Poitier wanted a black photographer for some film he was going to do. And so I went down to see him. Somebody told me and gave me the number. So I went to see him and he came in and he looked at my portfolio and he was, you know, nice photographs, et cetera. And then he got to a beautiful, gorgeous picture of Diana Carroll. And he closed the book and walked out. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I was just sitting there, you know, I didn't know what to do. And then his producer came in. He said, I think that uh, Sidney had some, you know, maybe flashbacks because he had done a movie with Diana Carroll uh, called Paris Blues. And they were engaged at that time and it didn't work out. So I think he still had some leftover feeling. Oh, my. Anyway, oh my. His, his producer said, I like your work. He said, I, he said, you're a really good photographer. So I got a friend who's making a movie. Uh, I want you to go over and see him. And I had heard people tell me that. I said, yeah, yeah, okay, all right. Give me his number. He said, no, 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 sit there. He called him on the phone and said, I got a guy here. I want you to see him right away. So I went over to United Arts, and the guy looked at my work. He said, this is the kind of stuff I look for in still photographers. He said, you're a really good street shooter. He said, I think you'd be good in the movie business. And he hired me right there on the spot. So that was the first movie I worked on, Cotton Comes to Harlem. Is the picture of Diana Carroll the one that's on your website? Yeah. She's turned around laying on a couch like. That, that, that is a, a striking, striking picture. Tell me about some of your pictures of musicians. Uh, I'm looking at this one of Keith Richards, who looks like he's 200 years old. Uh, but Yeah, yeah. He's a funny guy. <laughs> was, he was playing. That was the picture I shot while he was actually performing. But he kind of stopped and was talking to the audience at that time. And that was at the, in uh, New York at the Apollo. But I, I, because I love music so much and uh, I really thought that's what I was going to be, uh, I hung, hang around still to this day. I have a lot of musician friends. I met all of them, you know. Um, Dexter Gordon was wonderful. Uh, Archie Shep. And that shot of Archie Shep was like, you know, I just love it because it's him. He's not playing the horn. He's just sitting there being Archie Shep, you know, and I really, really love that picture of him. I love the picture that I shot of Miles, too. Um, all these guys, you know, uh, I just love musicians. That's all. And I always wanted to capture something that spoke about who they were you know, without them playing. I mean, I got a shot of Dexter Gordon playing. And he's into the horn. You can see and he's got the sweat rolling down the side. Of his, but the feeling, it's about the feeling. It's always about the feeling for me in anything that I do. That is a lesson that, you know, you hear and you understand. And it is so hard, I think, for, you know, beginning photographers, intermediate and advanced, to, you know, to keep that in mind, you know, that, that you're, you're photographing something well beyond just the documentary value. You're right. photographing something of heart and spirit. Right. Um, tell me why most of your work, not all, but your photographic work is black and white. Well, I think that black and white reproduces in the mind as just natural. I mean, we, we see in color, but I think that we think a lot as photographers in black and white. Because black and white, if you look at it, 
really good black and white, there's a sense of color in terms of the light, you know, and it's always about the light and the movement of the light. And the black and white can really feel almost like color sometimes. You know, color sometimes destroys the feeling of, a, of an image, you know, because then they soup the color up and it's super bright. If you're going to shoot color, then shoot color for color. Don't try to mix it up with something else, you know. And a lot of the photographers that I liked and talked to are great black and white. But I mean, Roy D. Carava never wanted to shoot color. He said he wasn't interested in shooting color at all. That he felt he didn't he didn't like flash either. He felt all that destroyed the natural feeling of what the image was, you know. And I mean, you know, I, and you will never find a color photograph of Roy D. Carabas. But when you look at the tonalities of what he did, the, those grays, those rich grays and blacks and whites, they come alive. They come alive. And I think that that's, that's what it was all really about, you know. I mean, Gordon had to shoot everything because he was a journalist, but he too was a big black and white person, you know. And he, I think most of the time, you look at uh, Eugene Smith, Jesus, that shot of Schweitzer in Africa. I mean, if that had been in color, you would have lost all that feeling. You know, it's a shot of Schweitzer shot from his head is bending over and he shot it from the top. You see his hair hanging down. He's working on something, but beautiful, beautiful. Now you go with somebody like Pete Turner who shoots color. I mean, he's one of the great color photographers, but he shoots color for color. He doesn't try to mix that up with something else. Not that it can't be done. There are some photographs that are really great in color. But I think that for the most part, I'm a black and white photographer. You do have you have several images on your website and elsewhere that are in color. And, of course, we're going to get to painting here in just a minute. But, but I want to ask, um, you know, these days it's easy to shoot in color. You go to Lightroom and then you flick back and forth between, you know. But do, do you, if, if you're thinking of yourself as a black and white photographer, does that affect the way you're looking at the world? Does that affect your composition, your sense of light? Well, I think so, yes, because you're in control, you know. You can't say to somebody, we almost got that picture, but, but the guy walked in front of me, or I shot it at the wrong spot. You're in charge. You're in charge of that camera. You have to balance your feeling, your movement, what you're looking at, the frame, the exposure. you got to do all that. And I think that that takes a lot of concentration and it takes a lot of practice. You know, you got, I used to shoot a roll of film every day when I started. It got to be a little bit expensive, so I bought a daylight yes, loader. So I could shoot, cost me a penny a shot, frankly. So then I'd load up a 100-foot roll of black and white triax and hit the streets. Because you've got to do it. You, you, you know, it's like playing an instrument. First of all, you got to play those scales in every key. But then you have to play it so many times that it becomes natural almost, you know. Then you can express yourself, you know. You can start with the, the tune, and then when you finish it and you go to the refrain, you can start playing what you feel. That's what jazz is, you know. They play the tune, and everybody plays what they feel about it or how they're feeling that day or what it 
keys and the notes and all that. But you had, you can't do that unless you practice all the time. Coltrane was practicing all the time, every day, all the time. I mean, Eric Dolphy, somebody said Eric Dolphy, the reed on his horns never got dry. That's how much he practiced. <laughs> you know? I like that. I, there, there's, there's a good lesson in that. Let's make a switch now because you are not only a world-class photographer, you are a world-class painter. And your painting is vibrant with colors and it, it is all abstract you know expression it, it the, your paintings just seem to leap off the canvas if i didn't know better if i if you were to show me your paintings and show me your photography i would say you know is this the same person doing both of these who, who who's doing the paintings to tell me about that what you're doing there for me the reason i wanted to start painting was to get i wanted to do something with my hands I wanted to create something from nothing, you know. With photography, you have an image and you capture it, you know. With music, you have a song and you play it, and then you might, you know, write a tune or so. But painting, you're looking at a black canvas. you got to come up with something. What are you going to come up with? Well, how do you get there? I mean, you can go to school and you can study painting, and how to mix colors and all of that. But, you know, you don't learn how to be a painter or you don't learn to be how to be an artist of anything in school. You just learn the technical end. And for painting, I was more interested in making the paint the subject as opposed to painting a bird or a tree or apple on a table or anything like that. So I was more into expressing the color of the paint as a, as the subject. I mean, Kandinsky was the artist that I really, you know, I liked Kandinsky a lot. Wilfredo Lam, I liked him a lot. And of course I like Picasso, but I, I think that the main dude that really, uh, and I read his book on it, you know, and I felt that he was writing in the sense that you can have five painters and they all can paint a bottle on a table, but it's still a bottle on a table. But if you express your inner self, then everybody is different inside. So if you connect with that inner part of yourself, then you paint what you feel. And he took it to another level because he started using, you know, biological structures to make art as opposed to the structures the other other artists were making. So he, he was very creative in that way. And so that kind of led me, that released me from having to say, I don't know how to draw. <laughs> I can't be the artist, I don't know how to draw. You know, it's not about drawing. You know, you want to be a good draftsman, then set up the bottle on the table and draw it every day in different light forms. I, I used to make my students do that with the camera, go and shoot something, Every day, one thing, every day with the change of light. And then you learn something about how light works with things. You have to have a feeling for it. Emotionally, for me, pain, painting is very emotional. I mean, it's all emotional, but painting, there you are with all these colors and a blank canvas. What are you going to do? You can't find it in a book. You can't copy it from somebody else. You can't copy Picasso. I mean, if you want to learn to draw, yes, you go to the museum and you copy all the 
great statues and all of that. And that's great. And you learn how to you get your hand together and your eye and hand coordination to draw. And that's basically what drawing is about. You have to do it over and over again so it becomes second nature. You can't just start drawing. You know, it's control. And so I think with me, getting control of the color and making it express what I feel. I guess it's toward something like abstract expressionism to a certain degree because you're using paint in, uh, in a, not a form, formal way, but an informal way. You're making the paint the subject. You know, I, I love listening to you talk here because you keep talking about both control and freedom. You talk about technical mastery and then the ability to express yourself. And that is, of course, very much like jazz. I mean, you ha- you can't do improv until you've got the scales, until you've got, you know, uh, you you've got the foundation to build on. You can't do anything, any art form until you know and understand what it is. You can't be a good writer until you understand writing. You can't be a good mm-hmm. dancer until you... You know, dance, you know, people have natural qualities to do all these things, but you still have to practice. You have to use your body. You have to use your machine to make it work the way you want to. And that that's discipline. You got to have discipline. And then you can create something. You, you got to know what it is. You can't create, create out of something and you don't know what it is. You know, you can. And there are a lot of people that do. And it comes out like crap because there's no discipline behind it, no no understanding of what it's about. You're going to say, oh, I'm going to be an abstract painter, and you don't know any painters. Well, okay, that's good. You don't have to know any painters, but you're going to have to paint a lot because somewhere along the line, you're going to paint something that somebody else has done already and think that you've created something original. You know, it's like, Miles said, every trumpet player owes at least two of the notes that they play to Louis Armstrong. Because he was the first one who came along and really made it. I mean, okay, Coleman Hawkins. Coleman Coleman Hawkins, man, come on. He brought that tenor saxophone into jazz. He was the first one. You know, you got to look at what the masters did first. Look at Thelonious Monk. You know, you got to know what these people did and how they express what they express and the feeling that is in there before you run out and do something and think you created, you know, what was it? You know, I think when Jackson Pollock did what he did, everybody was like, oh, my son can do that. Just splatter paint around. (laughs) Anybody can do that. You know, he's just throwing around. But what they didn't understand is that he had something in his mind. He had an idea about what he was doing. He wasn't just throwing. He was dancing the paint into different forms. He didn't just throw it. You know, he danced with it. He made a form out of the movement. And then out of that form of movement, it was very much, when you look at it, very akin to nature. Nature is like that. Nature takes all these different forms, you know, and and he just danced the paint, you know. So absolutely, you know, dealing dealing with it, and it's great because when you get into it, you realize that as an artist, you're really doing spiritual work. It really is. 
Tell me what's next. Tell me what you're working on now. Oh, I'm working on trying to get a big book done. And I want to I want to do a book of water photographs because I've been photographing water for a long time. And I think that the first show that I had of them, they were 40 by 60 inches. There were 16 of them. And when people would come into the gallery to look at them, most Americans would walk in and say, oh, it's water. And they would leave. Or they say, oh, that's pretty, or that's interesting. They would leave. But the other people that came in, the Asians, the Japanese, Italian, all these people, they would sit down and look at it before they went to look at another picture. They would go around the gallery looking at it and letting that energy from that painting wash over them because we as bodies, as human bodies, are 75 to 80% water. It's like a direct connection. It's like plugging yourself into an electric socket. But you have to be still. You know, you can't be jumping around and, you know, you have to be still and let it come to you. It's just like when people go and walk out in nature in woods and then you come back home. You are energized. You don't even know that nature has energized you. What do you feel when you go by the ocean and you go to the beach? You don't even go in the water. You just sit there for a while and you say, I'm going home. When you come home and you take a shower, you feel energized because that energy in the water has connected to you. It has healed you. Water is very healing to the soul and to the spirit. But people don't think, don't think about it. It's like, People cutting down the trees and, you know, trees are saving your life. They're cleaning air. Why would you cut them down? You know, we don't we don't understand the things that the creator has put here to give us life. We're destroying it. For the guy under the guise of, oh, we got to make money. We need this and we need that and electronics and we need all. We don't need any of that. All you need to do is connect to what has been given to you as a spiritual being, we are all spiritual beings. You know, people say, "Oh, that's that's hokey pokey." <laughs> no, no, that that, that is pokey. hardcore truth, man. People sometimes confuse mm-hmm. spirit and religion. You know, and spirit is spirit, yeah. and religion is religion. Spirit is made by the Creator. Religion is made by man. Who do- is that? Man? <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. who, who, whoever that nut is, I want to go spend more time with him. Um, <laughs> sir, th- this has been very interesting and a lot of fun. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com. <laughs>